Hello, I'm Peter Whittle. Welcome to So What You're Saying Is. Now, a few years ago, the Shadow Chancellor, John McDonald, famously waved Chairman Mao's Little Red Book in the House of Commons. And more recently, the Shadow Home Secretary, Diane Abbott, said that, on balance, Chairman Mao did more good than harm, quote. Extraordinary, really. It seems that for some people on the left, putting the case for communism has not stopped with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. But quite how communist is Corbyn and the current Labour Party? Now, the writer and author Giles Udi has been looking at this, has written a brilliant article in the current edition of Standpoint, and he's with me now. So, good morning, Giles. Um, yeah, can you tell me, Giles, with this piece that you've just written, you are actually sort of looking at the communist credentials, aren't you, of the people around Corbyn? Because he sort of portrayed very much, obviously, he's a bit of a bogeyman by the right-wing press, but at the same time as, if you like, um, just a lefty. There's a difference, isn't there? Yeah. Well, there, there, is, there is a big difference. There are all sorts of variations on the socialist spectrum, from Tony Blair, who many true socialists would believe never was a socialist, right the way through to members of the Communist Party of Britain and various other fringe groups, of which there have been many over the last hundred years, and there are still many kicking around. Uh, most of them are now on board as Corbyn supporters. The thing that attracted me most of all to it in the beginning, or, or attracted my attention rather, is that um, I realised there were a lot of individuals that I had known of as extreme left-wingers who were now gathered around the Corbyn circle. And uh, uh, it struck me that nobody who understood what they believed and what they were standing for would actually draw them into an inner circle of advisors and associates uh, unless they really were either neutral or sympathetic with what those particular individuals had been pursuing as a political doctrine for 10, 20, 30, in some cases 40 years. So the point is, it seems like a very um, uh, uh, clear thing to us, but I think to most people, you know, this use of the word socialist, the use of the word communist, it all tends to get a bit complicated. You know, do you think that they are actually aiming, as it were, to put in place a hardline socialist or communist state in Britain? Well, I think it's first of all a good idea that we understand what they would mean yeah. by socialism. It was Alexander Solzhenitsyn who actually said that for most people, socialism just is something warm and fuzzy right. and, and good. And I think most people in this country would think of socialism as something warm and fuzzy and good that's going to look after the poor and is going to make society fairer and perhaps stop some of the excesses of the very wealthy. But as far as the left wing of the Labour Party as far as the hard left are concerned, all the different phrases you'd call them, socialism means something very, very specific. Socialism is the is it was referred to by Marx and Lenin. We, after all, have the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics as one stage towards the utopia of communism, the fully equal society. Socialism is the 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 formation period at which uh, the major parts of the economy are taken over by the state, by the people or by the state. Uh, they're nationalized and it is believed that once that has come into place, then it will naturally morph into communism. So socialism can either mean the process of 
getting towards communism, but at the same time there were some people, and, and Marx and Lenin themselves sometimes appear to use the, the, Lenin appears to use the phrase interchangeably, whereby the two actually really mean the same thing. And I think to anyone who calls themselves a, uh, a socialist today, they would understand that this is the takeover of the major parts of production in society, in the banking system and whatever, in order that we can bring, they can bring communism in. I think there's one big uh, clarification which needs to be made, and that is that democratic socialism, which uh, people like Jeremy Corbyn would say he espouses yeah. as his doctrine, is very different from social democracy. We, yeah. We're told that, that really all they, want, all they want is a Sweden or a Norway yeah. or whatever else. Well, social, social democracy actually says capitalism okay, is okay, but it needs to be carefully controlled and channeled so that society is fair. Uh, democratic socialism says capitalism is the enemy and must be abolished in every form. The two things are completely incompatible. So who are these people around Corbyn then that you would particularly, you know, single out as being influential? Well, I think you do have his long-term colleague from the Stop the War Coalition, Andrew Murray. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Murray uh, and he have um, Box and Cox as leaders of the, the Stop the War Coalition. Andrew Murray has been a member of the Communist Party of Britain, which is a very, very small party with only seven or 800 members. He was a member of the party for 30 or 40 years. He sat on its, its, its leadership. Uh, he uh, was one of the editorial committee of its theoretical journal and indeed was actually chosen by the party to give the annual address at Marx's graveside. So uh, a, a very important and eminent communist figure. And uh, he, he supposedly left the Communist Party in 2016 and then reappears actually running Jeremy Corbyn's election campaign in 2017. Yeah. Uh, he then went back to unite the union of which he's also chief of staff, which is a major funder of the Corbyn programme. And then he has now joined the Labour Party as Jeremy Corbyn's special advisor. So, so he's one of the key figures. Yeah. Uh, and you may have seen in the papers that there's been a little bit of a, a tussle over whether or not he'd get security clearance and has he been coming into Parliament without that security clearance and whatever. Uh, you look on communist chat rooms uh, where all the old commies get together and swap gossip and, and stories. And, uh, you know, one of them I, I, I read a while back was saying, has he really left the party? He doesn't appear to have changed his views. I think there's one very key thing as far as he's concerned in that if you understand the left today, you'll know that, you know, Monty Python spoofed it, splitters, um, they're, oh, yes. no, they're notoriously yeah. subdivide and split and turn against each other and whatever else. And if anyone actually betrays one party by leaving it, they're completely cold-shouldered. Well, uh, Andrew Murray has supposedly left the Communist Party of Britain. There have been no condemnations of his departure, whatever, and he's still writing for the Morning Star, which is their newspaper. Jeremy Corbyn was a long-time columnist for the Morning Star, and the Morning Star isn't just a left-wing newspaper, the Morning Star is actually the party newspaper of the Communist Party of Britain, um, and it has, it has a, a, an editorial policy of following the programme of the Communist Party of Britain, which is for the replacement of capitalism by socialism, leading to a communist uh, state. 
So uh, you would have thought that if he had indeed left the party, he would have been blacklisted unless he left the party with their blessing in order to be able to join Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, he's he's he's. Jeremy Corbyn's close colleague, and there are others around there. Like she uh, Seamus Mill. Well, yeah, yeah. yes, plenty of people have mentioned Seamus Milne's yeah. role now as Director of Communications for the Labour Party. Um, Seamus Milne has a long history, which the newspapers have, have raised many times and is easy to find on Google, of uh, a, a tacit approval of communist uh, regimes in in um, in East Germany and uh, uh, he has regretted the the loss of the social benefits that existed under communism at the same time those who weren't lucky enough to receive those wonderful benefits were in Stasi prisons or gulag camps. I mean we sort of see this you know this kind of apology this kind of sticking up for these systems all the time most recently of course now with Venezuela. Yeah. I mean, we have this extraordinary situation in Venezuela, extraordinary crises, and yet there is still this reluctance, isn't there, to condemn the government uh, on the part of Labour? It, it's extraordinary, don't you think? Uh, I, it is extraordinary, but at the same time, I think it's actually understandable. Yeah. You, you need to understand that in the, in, in the world of British politics, those who are on the right and centre-right don't really have a very well-developed doctrine of what it is they believe in. And many conservatives are conservatives simply because they support the status quo. Yeah. And they generally think that they had a nice idea of family and whatever. But if you actually just sit them down and say, what precisely do you believe is important about your branch of the political spectrum, they wouldn't really be able to tell you. Talk to a socialist uh, and they will be able to give you, if they are a true socialist, they'll be able to give you chapter and verse of the political theory. It is virtually a, it's virtually a, another theology, a religious belief. They have their own messiahs, they have their own prophets, they have their own sacred books, Marx's works, now 50 volumes, but we have the Communist Manifesto, um, and then within the split you've got the various writings of Lenin and Trotsky, um, and let Trotskyites don't always get on with other parts of, of, of the British left. Um, but overall, they know what they believe. This means in the case of Venezuela, anybody who in the Chavez and Maduro have pursued the doctrine of socialism are on our side. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, it is very, very hard, having supported them so hard, so, 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 so publicly, to then ramp back on that. And it's fascinating too that, that this idea that every failure of socialism is the consequence of a capitalist conspiracy is something that, that, that goes on through the history of nation after nation after nation where socialism has got into trouble. Very often socialism's allies abroad will blame those troubles primarily on capitalist powers trying to bring them down. I mean, this is this is something obviously you've written about at great length. I've got actually your book here, uh, which is Labour and the Gulag. I can put it up there. It's uh, a you know, huge and very disturbing uh, read, which I understand actually, Charles, you sort of almost did by accident, isn't that right? I mean, you started off writing about something else entirely and then came around to the story. But what it does show is that you know, Labour has got form here, hasn't yeah. it? I mean, if you go right back, is it is it right to say as far as the Bolshevik Revolution? I mean, well, I think it's I think it's very I, I, th I think one needs to set as a preamble here that many people who are drawn to socialism are drawn out of a genuine 
uh, concern for the poor and the needy. Uh, they are attracted by something they don't really know, but they believe will help to build a better society. And there have been many people through the history of the Labour Party who have been drawn in for that reason. Yeah. And there are a number of people who've taken a, we'll discuss the book in a minute, who've taken a very different path. And, and I would say after the war, Clement Attlee and his foreign secretary, Ernest Bevan, were very, very clear um, uh, and, and took a very honourable and, and good path on this. But I think it is fair, too, to, to say that right at the beginning of Labour history, the Marx was an attraction. We hear today a lot about the Labour Party is more birthed in Methodism than Marx. And it's something in the book I've looked into in considerable detail. And uh, it's not just my opinion, but the opinion of quite a few Labour historians that that actually isn't really the case. For around the turn of the 19th, 20th century, uh, most of the nonconformists in the country were actually liberals rather than uh, Labour supporters. And the Labour Party was drawn really to Marx. They were drawn to yeah. the messianic vision, the utopia that he offered in a world which was very different from our own, where inequality was very, very pronounced and social division was very pronounced. And, um, and so they were drawn to Marx and they found in Marx the first vocalisation of their heart beliefs, but they found the clear theory set out there. And so from the earliest stage and from the famous clause for um, in the early Labour constitution of 1918, I think it was, the goal was the socialization of society, the instruments of production were to be taken over by the state, the rich were to be expropriated in order that their extreme wealth and their ability to inherit that extreme wealth would be curtailed. So from the very beginning, this is a very, very strong stream. But in the days when the Labour Party was formed in 1906, this was all theoretical. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly in 1917, we actually see the socialist utopia, the communist future begin to be realised. And after 10 years of thinking about this, of reading Marx and whatever else, suddenly they see in front of their eyes, one country is attempting to become socialist. And there's this immediate emotional response. So what was These the, people uh, must be supported. What, at what stage, I mean, we, we now know, although frankly, I'd still say that there's a huge amount of wider ignorance about it, but we now know the extent of, if you like, Stalinist terror in the 1930s, whatever. At what point, at what point were people in the Labour Party, if you like, when did they stop, sort of, as it were, covering for it? I mean, when I say covering for it, did they, when did they first know about it? This is, this is the, George Orwell said famously that anybody that really, you know, was worth their salt would know in, I think it was 1941, he said, quite what had gone on with the Soviet regime. But weren't there still people around, in the Labour Party indeed, who were actually not quite coming straight about it. Well, in point of fact, they knew about it uh, with successive bits of information coming to them right from the revolution. They disbelieved the stories of the atrocities. Uh, some may have been exaggerated, but for the most part, they disbelieved the bad stories they heard. They believed they were made up. Uh, 
unfortunately, or, or fortunately, the uh, the government in uh, Moscow, the Bolsheviks, were pretty cantankerous and belligerent towards foreign socialist or other parties that they thought were a little bit wishy-washy on communism. So um, the history of the 1920s is 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 one of of. Uh, unity with Russia and then falling out with Russia and unity with Russia. But if they fell out, they only fell out with the government. They never fell out with the idea of revolution. And Stalin, after all, didn't start to take power until the nine, late 1920s. Not, not seriously. And, and Lenin was, was establishing death camps uh, right from the days of the revolution. So, so um, they were aware of it, but, but they kept on then returning to this idea that, that this was, these were our socialist brothers and, and, and turning a blind eye to what was going on and indeed sometimes even defending it. Well, I think, uh, is it uh, George Lansbury <clears throat> who said that basically he called communism this great uh, miraculous experiment or something? I don't know at what point he said that, but um, and basically I think it's all a question, isn't it, of the timing, as you say. In the 1930s, you had this, for example, purge of uh, the clergy in, in Russia. Clergy, intellectuals and, and sort of middle class peasants. Yes. But there was a particular, I wonder if you could just tell us about, there was the timber uh, yeah. situation, the, the timber industry, where, in fact, you know, there was an extraordinary amount of slave labour and yeah. whatever. And uh, so labour and people in the Labour Party here would not have known about that, or they would and have said, OK, it's, you know? Yeah. Uh, no, very definitely did. And in fact, this was the original story which got me on to what became the whole book because I was writing a gulag history. And then in the process, I was looking through some reports of what had been going on in Parliament and I found questions about this. And it so shocked me, then I looked deeper into it. What happened was that as Stalin took power, he decided that the time had come really to break the power of the countryside. And so he ordered the deportation of between one and a half million and 1.8 million peasants. Um, the wealthier peasants, but nonetheless, they were what we would probably consider to be smallholders, uh, together with intellectuals, together with priests. And they were taken in cattle trucks uh, to the far northwest of Russia and to Siberia to work in labor camps cutting timber for the Soviet export market. Absolutely terrible conditions. They would be uh, they would be taken from their homes at sometimes only a few hours' notice, inadequately clothed, sometimes from the south of Ukraine. This was before the Ukraine famine ever ever started, um, and then shipped in cattle trucks. Elderly men, women, children. Twenty thousand children died in the first year alone, and within a few years, a quarter of a million of them were dead. But they were in these camps cutting timber, and the most important and largest market was Great Britain. We were importing at today's value £500 million worth of timber a year. And uh, it didn't take long before the story got out. Uh, there were a few stowaways who managed to get out on the ships. If they were, any prisoners were found on the ships that they'd been loading, they were shot and the bodies thrown over the side. The stories started to come back from seafarers who'd been there. And uh, it, questions were raised in Parliament fairly quickly. Uh, and the government was confronted and uh, tried to say, well, we don't have the evidence. We don't know what's going on. We can't find out. And until we do, this is all just rumour. And this is an attack on the Labour government. The uh, Ramsay MacDonald had become prime minister in 1929. So at that time, we had a Labour government. Yeah. 
And uh, every single attempt by the Conservatives to raise the matter was, was stopped in the Commons. The supposedly unrepresentative House of Lords uh, actually became the forum on which it was discussed and the government was challenged much, much more. And there was this campaign then that the churches really got behind and in fact were the instigators of because at the same time there was a tremendous amount of repression of religious believers. Uh, you could just be someone who supplied candles to a church and it would be sufficient for you to be arrested. And uh, so we ended up with a, a, a day of prayer, which was the protest that the churches could organize at the time, which was joined in by over a million people around the world. But uh, the government paid no attention to that. And what I have found fascinating and horrifying is by digging into foreign office records and cabinet minutes, I've discovered they knew exactly what was going on. They actually stopped an inquiry into the matter um, and blocked it for fear that the truth would come out. The wording, which is in the book, and I can't quite remember, was... Um, was the fear, I think, that they said, yes, they said that if we stop the trade, it might harm uh, trade elsewhere. There might be other trade with the empire that would need to be stopped too. But in fact, their own civil servants had told them this was completely spurious reason and didn't exist. And so the whole matter progressed with these, these deliberate obstructions, with these uh, testimonies coming in to the Foreign Office and being ignored uh, or dismissed by um, Dalton, who was uh, Foreign Secretary uh, Henderson's uh, junior minister. Uh, and uh, eventually they ma the Conservatives managed to get it to one debate in Parliament in March 1931. And it was the most sorry affair. I think it was one of the most shameful, as far as I can see, one of the most shameful events in British parliamentary history, though I'm sure there may be many, um, which ended up with a government minister speaking on behalf of the government. One of his colleagues had previously said that uh, Russian prisons were more humane than British prisons. Yes, I um, yeah, yeah. It ended up with one government minister saying that the Soviets, this is, this is the deportation of one and a half million people. This is the death of 250,000 people. This is something which had been defended in the socialist press, in the Manchester Guardian, in the New Statesman, by some of the leading left-wing journalists of the day. This uh, government minister said the, the, the Soviets are conducting a very interesting economic experiment to deserve to be allowed to continue it without outside interference, um, and we will give them every support that we can. It's interesting, as you say, journalists, uh, New Statesman, Guardian, whatever, <clears throat> there were a lot of fellow travellers, weren't there? I mean, like yes. famous people, people who are still celebrated now, George Bernard Shaw, yeah. Sidney and Beatrice Webb, yeah. these people who, you know, were extraordinary apologists, weren't they, for, you know, what was actually going on. Were they actually just, you know, willfully blind, do you think, when they, you know... when? In in the case of the Webbs, yes, willfully blind. They were at the end of their they were at the end of their lives. The, the Sydney and Beatrice Webbs, founders of the LSE, founders of the New Statesman, uh, now buried in Westminster Abbey, honoured early socialists. They were at the end of their life, and and they became absolutely enraptured by the great experiment, as it was called. They wrote a book which is as thick as mine, uh, and went all the way around the world. And part of it was actually written for them by the Russian embassy, 
who had sent, they, they'd submitted their notes to the ambassador, who was their friend, they believed. The ambassador had sent them back to the Russian foreign ministry, where the propaganda was written, sent back, and then the propaganda reappears in their book. They were that gullible. And, and you get these ridiculous things, like, uh, you know, Sidney Webb uh, said, as far as the execution rate in uh, Russia is concerned, it's comparable with any civilized country. In fact, I've done the numbers, and they were killing 500 times more people uh, than were dying in the West. Uh, you can't say the same thing about George Bernard Shaw, though, and you mentioned him. Yes, well, because it, it seems to me he was particularly egregious uh, in mm. things that he said. Isn't that right? Well, uh, we think of Shaw as my fair lady and, and, and yeah, yeah, absolutely, and lovely grey beard. Yes. And he was a very charismatic speaker. He was the interwar Labour Party's most famous uh, propagandist. He was, you know, he was the David Beckham at David Beckham's height, but the David Beckham of the Labour Party. Shaw, I believe, was one of the most hideous characters. He twice called for the invention of poison gas to dispose of those who were no use to society, by which he included capitalists, something that the national socialists, with a different doctrine, uh, I wouldn't call them socialists, but something the national socialists obviously obliged. At various times he commended the execution that was going on in Russia, saying that really the Soviet secret police were the only people in a thoroughly communist nation who could be trusted to discharge such a responsibility um, wisely. Uh, this is extraordinary. It, it is extraordinary. He, he, he talked about how it was necessary to weed yeah. the garden. Yeah. But he had, he had been saying this for a very long time. He wrote in 1920 a lengthy um, explanation of what socialism should look like in this country, and it included uh, labour camps where people would be consigned on pain of death if they were not to work for society. Yeah. But all these things were ignored, um, or they were discounted, and, and, uh, and he died an honourable death, and I think he is buried too in Westminster Abbey. I think so, Poets Corner probably. You know, probably. With, um, right up to the current day, we had obviously academics like Eric Hobsbawm, who quite famously said that actually right up to the very end, I mean this is interesting, before he died, that it was sort of worth the few million deaths. That's, that's in effect what he was saying um, for the greater plan, as it were. And it's extraordinary how somehow these people remain in in situ, didn't they? They, they, you know, they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't sort of drummed out of academia. They weren't in any way persecuted. They, they you know, because it, the end goal of the utopia was considered to be so morally yes, good, exactly. it was worth the cost. Yeah. And and Hobsbawm's comments, whatever they were, are, are reasonably consistent. They're actually consistent. And again, if you look at Venezuela today, they 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 are in part consistent with the way people are looking yeah. at. There is a cost. People used to talk about. You can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. Um, I know, but I think that the uh, reports to that was somebody, a wag one said, was, where is the omelette? Yes, indeed. Exactly. Where, where is the omelette? Um, Josh, thank you very, very much. I mean, we could actually talk about, about this for a lot of longer. Um, indeed, but, uh, I have done over many hundreds of pages. You have many hundreds of pages. It's uh, Labour and the Gulag uh, by Giles Udi. And uh, it is a very, very sobering read, but uh, an extremely important one. Uh, Giles, thank you very, very much for coming on. my pleasure. On. And uh, we'll see you next time on So What You're Saying Is. And do remember, if you've enjoyed it, uh, go to our other interviews and do subscribe as well, won't you? Thanks very much. Bye-bye.